you know, monitoring. There's this concept in the insurance business we call active risk management. So it used to be that you put a driver in a truck with a, a full a full load and say a prayer. But now with active risk management, you can and telematics, you can keep track of where he's operating, what speeds he's traveling at, what the weather mm-hmm. conditions are. If you're dealing with icy roads, you know you expect a reduction in speed, all that kind of cool stuff. Yeah. So learning how to use the data has been the challenge for a lot of the the transportation and logistics industries. I just think it's such a great thing for logistics companies to put together because it helps them understand their business in ways they wouldn't do otherwise. Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast about innovation where I talk to today's leading experts in the transportation and logistics space. Our topics are industry forecasts, company mishaps, and discussions about the overall climate of business. I'm your host, James Peterson. Today's podcast is sponsored by Sandshark Logistics. These guys are doing amazing things and their growth that they've made happen during COVID has been so impressive. If you need someone who understands sand, who understands the fracking space and who can facilitate you with a well-trained, vetted sand coordinator for your pad site, email my close friend Isaiah at sandsharkofs.com and he will take care of you. Thank you. I know you probably thought you came here to talk about your beloved Chicago Bears. As a Bears fan in Dallas and Fort Worth, I get the creeps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to escort you out. We don't want you to get attacked on the on the way to Uber <laughs> or something. But, you know, you're someone I, I'm really looking forward to having on here. You know, Thank the, you. I think like, this is a great, a great pursuit. I want to support it anywhere I can. You know, I, I was telling one of my last guests, one thing you can always count on whenever you go talk to a new company, whether it's a logistics company, transportation, trucking, shipping, they they ask questions. They want information. They want to know whether it's tort reform or rate questions or coverage questions. You know, what's my competition doing? What's my competition paying? So there is a need for information out there. So it doesn't have to be a commercial for you. I think people really just want to hear what you have to say. Well, man, there's a lot to say in this space right now. <laughs> there, it, it seems like every time I open up the news, something is going on with shipping rates or, you know, container issues or shortages or, or whatever. Yeah. We actually have a sponsor for today's podcast. It's Sandshark Logistics. I know you probably thought that I was giving you a pink hat. Unfortunately, no. Is that what Bears fans have to wear in Dallas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're just, you know, we just got to know who we're dealing with and who we're talking to. We don't want to be too friendly to a non-Cowboys fan. All right. You know, so you've been doing this since 1975? Yeah, I basically started in the insurance business in my second year of law school. So I've been a a practitioner. I've been licensed since 1977. But insurance just fascinated me. Mm. And it's only gotten more fascinating as time. I mean, the last year has been just unbelievably interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you, I mean, your clients and the people you talk to would agree with this, but nobody knew what COVID was going to do to transportation logistics. It turns out it, it's become a, a you know 30% increase year over year in terms of, in terms of e-commerce. Mm-hmm. 
and and uh, trucking driver shortages, and people. I guess in hindsight, you could say we could have seen this, but the emphasis on goods over services. So services down, goods up. So mm-hmm. groceries up big time, restaurants down big time. So that just puts a huge emphasis on everything related to moving goods, either internationally or in, in North America, warehouses, trucks, mm. containers, et cetera. It's just been fascinating. Can we circle back to something you said? Sure. A second year of law school. So you, you have your law degree? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's you're like a stain and a lawyer. It's like a stain I can't get off my soul. You're at two strikes right now. I don't, I don't know how this is going to You know, I, I was thinking, I was laughing to myself. I mean, so a lot of people don't like the insurance industry because it's expensive and, and it's very complex and it's hard to understand whenever you get into very complex coverages. So you're in insurance and an attorney. Oh, I mean, that's why you're such a likable guy. You I'm sure you have, have things be. you're not proud of. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, it's been a great. I think you know, going to law school. I've told my my kids this. It's a great way to get a complete liberal education. Where else are you going to learn about contracts? Where else are you going to learn about real estate and property? There's all sorts of things I would never have learned had I not gone to law school. And I certainly never wanted to practice. I really always wanted to stay in the insurance business. So it's it's been a great a great run. How did you get your start in the insurance space? I got my start at as a broker at Marsh and McLennan, and I was handling ocean cargo claims. Mm. So I learned the whole process of recovering from the insurance company and how to protect subrogation against the the vessel owner and uh, you know how to phrase it, bill of lading, so you maximize your recovery. All that stuff was just fell right into my my sweet spot in terms of what I was studying in law school. So, mm. and I've had various jobs in the business, but basically always focused on this concept of moving goods, mm-hmm. stuff that moves. And that even goes down to barge lines, oil tankers. It's it's all about you know the the protections for the supply chain. And that mm-hmm. I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, supply chain, if you're so inclined to all, it, it could be incredibly fascinating. I mean, you start to learn the actual process that requires that is is in place for a say a shipping container to get from like Shanghai to the port of Houston. It's amazing. It's incredible. It is. And there's it is. so many moving bits and pieces, and there's so much risk involved in that space. And a lot I mean, of my clients are international freight forwarders, mm-hmm. so they're all struggling to maintain supply of of boxes, containers. Mm-hmm. And they're all struggling to make sure that there's enough space in those boxes to keep the the, the trade lanes open. Mm-hmm. So right now it's really, there's a shortage of, of empty containers in Asia Pacific, in mm-hmm. Singapore, Shanghai, those places. To, and so there's, there's a, a competition for that box space right now, which is, which is raising rates and raising costs. Mm-hmm. Then you have ocean carriers. I'm not sure if, if you read any of these things I send out virtually every day because I have no life. <laughs> but ocean carriers are kind of like, they basically can name the tune. So you think you have a contract with um, Maersk or Ocean Network, and, and you know what your rates are going to be, and they basically can say, we're canceling the sailing. We're blanking the sailing. We don't think we're going to make enough money. It's like an airline being able to cancel a flight because they don't have enough enough of a load. So being able to rely upon ocean carriers to get your containers from point mm-hmm. A to point B is has become very problematic in the last year or so. Anybody who 
you know, has to book freight in that space. I'm sure. I'm not telling them anything they don't, they don't know. Uh, I don't understand, or maybe you can explain a little bit the actual source of the container shortages. I mean, did this all come from COVID? Is that what's really driving it? Well, so the the, the boxes are filled with cargo and goods in mm-hmm. Asia, in Asia, mm-hmm. and are shipped over the Pacific generally. I mean, there are other trade lanes, but the one yeah. that's most interesting right now is is Asia to California, to Long Beach or places like that. Once the boxes then are delivered to their ultimate consignee, once they're emptied, how do you get the boxes back to Asia? Ordinarily, mm-hmm. there's enough commerce going back and forth that you can you can backhaul the empty boxes and you can keep the supply robust in, in Asia. But because of the fact that the, that commerce channels have slowed down in so many ways, a lot of boxes are sitting here mm-hmm. and aren't where they need to be, which is basically in, in China mm-hmm. or in Asia. So a lot of the freight forwarders I work with are buying boxes or leasing boxes mm-hmm. and leasing them so they can be where they need to be and basically are going to try to maintain the, the box supply by bringing their own boxes to the table, which is a fairly unique development. Hmm. Sounds like there might be a gap there that some clever, hardworking entrepreneur can explore, maybe capitalize on yeah, a well, box shortage. They're all over it, no question about it. Boxes yeah. themselves are fairly inexpensive. Yeah. I mean, a couple of, thousand, couple of thousand dollars, but being able to make sure you have the boxes you need, where you need them, when you need them is the art of it. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, a lot of the freight forwarders and the logistics companies I'm working with are using digital tracking. They're basically using big data to try to keep track of where these boxes are and mm-hmm. what the best way is to return capacity to where it needs to be. Now, is that get, are they using blo- uh, blockchain at all with that? Oh, blockchain is a tool, but I wouldn't say it's, in my limited technical understanding, blockchain is going to be most relevant to a process that requires very, very high security. Mm-hmm. Um, Verifications. Yeah. And I think we're talking here about basically dispatching $5,000 valued boxes. So I don't know that blockchain is necessarily a, a critical tool. But this data thing is really interesting to me too. I mean, you, I'm sure your the people you talk to in the in the trucking business, for example, are they're being asked for big data for all over the place. And mm-hmm. I kind of look at it like you used to say, you know, what does what does a dog who chases a car do when it catches the car? <laughs> so if if yeah. if you're a trucking company and you, and you're being asked for data that you don't ordinarily provide, the question is, what are you doing with it? What mm-hmm. use do you get from it? Yeah, I'm. I've been fascinated by that. Just watching, you know, how the data is used for freight rates and how for load boards and mm-hmm. and you know monitoring. There's this concept in the insurance business we call active risk management. So it used to be that you put a driver in a truck with a, a full a full load and say a prayer, but now with active risk management, you can and telematics, you can keep track of where. He's operating, what speeds he's traveling at, what the weather mm-hmm. conditions are. If you're dealing with icy roads, you know, you expect a reduction in speed, all that kind of cool stuff. Yeah. So learning how to use the data has been the challenge for a lot of the, the transportation and logistics industries. I just think it's such a great thing for logistics companies to put together because it helps them understand their business in ways they wouldn't do otherwise. 
It's it's amazing the difference between transportation companies when it comes to the use of data. So I'm always so you go out and you talk to one company and that company has no has no cameras, no information. They might be at an e-log place, right? And they've never even seen their their own cab report or their own safer report, mm-hmm. right? And so and then you go talk to another company and they have front facing cameras and side cameras and rear cameras and they get they have apps on, on their tablet in the dash and they can see their driver's average speed and they can see how aggressive they're braking and just all this information and and with the active risk management, mm-hmm. if you have a driver engaged in something that's it is out out of the bounds in terms of the performance metrics, you can actually intervene. Mm-hmm. And that's why, from an insurance perspective, underwriters are fascinated by and more interested in companies who know how to get and use their data that way mm-hmm. to engage in active control of operations. There's there's a, a CEO I'm going to have on here in, in probably a month and a half or so. I don't want to say the name of the company or anything yet, but... They are working on this company and they aggregate data for Mm -hmm. a client, Mm -hmm. but they don't just aggregate truck data or telematics data. They aggregate weather, road conditions, safety cameras from stoplights, traffic cameras, just all this information that creates this amazing picture of this accident, this claim that happened. You get all this information, and I was having a conversation with this guy, and I was like, well, what kind of feedback are you getting from trucking companies, logistics companies? He said it's it's been mixed. Yeah. I'm like, you know. It's a well, little center of gravity. It, it's 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 strange. I, it's It's been a source of frustration for me because you get – you people don't realize that the reason they're paying so much for insurance is, A, a the, the, the trial attorneys, right? They're driving up the cost, but also – like the underwriters have traditionally had all the information, all the analytics and the actuarial, actuarial data. Well, that's been a change, Jim. The last four years or so, I've been I've had some association with some insure tech is the buzzword we use, mm-hmm. companies in London, for example. And I've watched them put together, apply data science principles to big data. So mm-hmm. the kinds of things you talked about, where's the truck, what are the road conditions, what time of day, et cetera. What can you draw in both from internal and external sources? And they trans- translate that using, they would say, machine learning into risk algorithms. Mm-hmm. So they can say, I like truck company A and I don't like truck company B. But they can help their clients say that, their underwriting mm-hmm. clients say that, based upon what the machine learning tells them about the about the performance of those companies. So if I ran a truck company right now in, in 2021, I would want to get ahead of that curve. I'd want to be able to present the strongest possible data case to the insurance market and help them say, from a risk perspective, you're a preferred risk, you're not a preferred risk. Would you call it the Chicago Bears Trucking Company? Not if I wanted to get it placed. (laughs) 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 That's a straight line. I don't know what to do with (laughs) it. But, uh, you know... But so just the process yeah. of watching machine learning go over data and what you can learn from it. I worked with no reason to mention them except they're almost like a public utility, Amazon, for example, mm-hmm. looking at the data they collect on parcel shipments. Yeah. There's no there aren't enough people on the planet to look at every parcel shipment and say that's that's okay there, that's not okay there. But with machine learning and algorithms, risk algorithms, they could say 
we don't want to drop a box on the porch in Philadelphia because it'll be gone in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. We can drop a box on the porch in Omaha and leave it there for six months. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of insight they can get from big data that just wouldn't have been available otherwise. So it's like a whole mm-hmm. new way, uh, access to a whole new body of knowledge we didn't have before. So what does that mean? What does that mean to a trucking company that has 800,000 trucks, multi-state, maybe running loads up into Canada and Mexico? Well, it means that the insurance companies, well, trucking companies, I mean, because I'm a nerd, I look at things like the American Transportation Research Institute stuff and uh, the most recent list of concerns that trucking companies have, for example, number one is a driver shortage. Mm -hmm. But I think number five is insurance costs of the top 10. And number seven is tort reform. So the cost of insurance, the cost of risk associated with their operation has got to be a pretty important concern for them. So if you have a way, it's kind of a, it's a twofold thing. If you have a way to run your operation more safely and more knowledgeably to show that you're actively engaged in risk management, not only will you be safer, not only will your assets be protected and your liabilities be reduced, your insurance costs are going to go down. Mm-hmm. And the more predictable and manageable you can make your insurance costs, you know, the, the better you're going to be able to maintain your margins and and grow the company. Yeah, it. I would say that you're spot on with that that list. And, and again, when I go talk to an existing client or a potential new client, there's a source of frustration, maybe a little bit of annoyance, or even maybe some anger around the cost of insurance, right? And I try to explain this to people. I'm saying, okay, okay, you have a, a guy, he owns one truck, right? He wants to grow. In order to go from like one truck to two trucks, that is a 100% overhead increase, right? And so just to get that, just to get that growth in place, it's not the act of buying a truck or it's not getting more contracts. It's getting insurance and hiring a driver, right? Those are, are prohibitive to growth. Yeah. And that doesn't change. So you reach critical mass. At a certain point, the the cost doesn't arise geometrically. But yeah, that's you're absolutely right. One of the things I've noticed lately, and so the gospel I preach to my trucking and logistics clients is, don't be afraid of insurance and don't be afraid of the contract. Mm. So, for example, if you have to deal with contractual obligations that you, you consider to be onerous, instead of pushing back, if you can use your insurance program, to support those obligations, you can turn insurance from a cost, a pure cost, into a business development tool. So, what do you, some, what do you mean? Like, you know, this is especially true in contract logistics, warehouses, that kind of stuff. If you're going to store stuff for Walmart, just to pick a generic name, the the terms on which you're going to store those goods are pretty onerous. You're going to assume a lot of responsibility, more than just you know the typical at law warehouse deposit receipt. Mm-hmm. And the the first reaction from the risk manager is to say, push back on it. See if we can't negotiate that provision out of the agreement, which is fine. And a, and a lot of the people in, in my business will help their clients figure out ways to push back. I think a more, a more proactive approach is to say, I have insurance. I've talked to my underwriter. My underwriter knows what I have to deal with. And so I can help you accept these terms from Walmart or whomever, you, you name the big big guys in town, the Apples, Walmarts, et cetera. Mm. I, I can help you accept those responsibilities 
in a way and for a cost that your competitors can't. So suddenly you can, if you look at it that, that way, insurance can be a business development tool mm-hmm. and not just a cost of, of doing business. Yeah, whenever you look at that MSA, those insurance requirements can get, the identification agreement's one thing, but those, that's something we can help them push back and work with, but the, the, the requirements themselves can get pretty onerous, especially yeah. if you're in, you're in a growth stage, you know? Yeah. So um, I guess my gospel is, it isn't always bad if there's a way to accept the enhanced responsibilities the contract's pushing on you, mm-hmm. then, as I say, you can differentiate yourself from your competition. Mm-hmm. And it all depends upon the ability to find an underwriter with whom you can have a dialogue who says, I know you guys, I trust you guys, I know what your business imperatives are, and so mm-hmm. I'll support you if you have to take more than a standard degree of liability. Mm-hmm. That's There are a couple of underwriters in the market right now who have that kind of vision, and we try to work with them a lot. Mm. Yeah, those relationships are fantastic, especially if they're willing to have a face-to-face or maybe Zoom dialogue with the end user, the client. I always tell my clients that nobody can tell your story better than you can. The last thing you want to do is not tell your story to the guy who's who's telling you how much your insurance is going to cost you. <laughs> you want that guy to know everything about your company, right? So can we can we zoom back out to sure. maybe 30,000 foot? So it's in the 70s. You're working. You're learning insurance space. So you... How, at what point did you move from like claims into becoming, say, a subject matter expert or understanding your niche the way you do? Well, when I graduated from law school and got my law degree, I had already left claims. Claims was sort of a training function. It's a great place to learn mm-hmm. the complexities of, of logistics and supply chain management. And back then, we you know we were trying to collect subrogation claims from the the Soviet fleet, Baltic and Black <laughs> How'd that Sea. That work out for you. <laughs> yet, yet, and we would fight all those battles. I was uh, the first, the the first big conflagration, for example, in Leb- Lebanon. A lot of my clients had hundreds of containers in Beirut. Oh wow! That were not only were they not a- available to be to be returned, they were used as housing. So I mean, I learned a lot about about the intersection of supply chain and geopolitics there, and all the insurance community looks at that stuff. So I, I moved from claims into, into call it underwriting, call it risk analysis, just fascination with, you know, the business circumstances in which my clients operate and the contracts they had to deal with. And that's kind of what I've done. Yeah, I had, I had moved into underwriting and, and risk management. And the first industry, true industry I got involved in was tug and barge business. Okay. So not many people, it's sort of a stealth industry in in North America, but a huge proportion of goods, bulk goods, moves down the Mississippi River and up the river uh, and into the Great Lakes. 27% of the U.S. GDP, by the most recent measurements, passes through the supply uh, chains in the Great Lakes. 27%? Yeah, it's That's astounding. So, yeah, so how do you, I don't know how they account for that. It takes an economist, but the basic proposition is that the ability to move goods on the, on the lakes and the ability to move goods down the river system <clears throat> is hugely important and critical to our country, our country mm-hmm. and to the economy. So I followed closely the, the regulatory issues. You know, the, the river business, the, the river system is federally maintained. Mm-hmm. So barge companies pay a tax to the federal government, but the federal government maintains the depths and the locks and the cha- uh, locks and dams. 
So I followed that back and forth and how the, our infrastructure is aging and in some cases is falling mm-hmm. apart. That led me to a consideration of what's going on with the Panama Canal. That was really interesting. So the, How so? Well, you wouldn't think of it. It's like that, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings in Africa thing. Uh-huh. So the, the decision to deepen the Panama Canal suddenly made ports like Galveston uh, and all along the, the southeast and Gulf Coast susceptible to or open to the kind of deep draft vessels that were now able to go through the, through the canal. Mm-hmm. And it's enlivened the the ports, port of um, Savannah, you name it, Nor- Norfolk, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's it's stimulated, therefore, the dredging industry to get, to keep the channel depths where they need to be to accommodate the vessels coming in. It's stimulated the rail rail companies and the logistics infrastructure companies to to bring rail links to those ports, so there's efficient transfer of boxes, et cetera. So. It, it's become a fascinating dynamic just to watch how goods and goods get moved from Asia basically to the East Coast by a whole new channel, a whole new route. It used to be come into Long Beach, get it on into an intermodal terminal, get it onto rail, and get, it would get to New York. You know, in, in X days, it was the most expensive, mm-hmm. albeit the fastest. Now, if you don't have time critical goods, the Panama Canal opens up all sorts of the new deeper, large Panama Canal opens up ports, other ports that you can get to. What years did they do that? Oh, gosh. In fact, it's still, they're, they're doing it yet again. The, I would have to say, I mean, maybe five years ago they completed the first expansion. So th- was that an Obama initiative? No, no, no. It was, well, the Panama Canal at that point was basically funded by an international consortium. Mm-hmm. So the funding for it was, there was a lot of private equity. There was some other governmental sponsorship. Everybody realized they had a stake in it. I'm sure we put our fair share of money into it, but <laughs> I'm sure. just it was just fascinating to watch the impact of the expanded Panama Canal on the supply chains and, and on trucking companies. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, suddenly the, the business is not all you know, drayage in Los Angeles to get the goods to a terminal or cross-country the business is getting goods from Savannah, Georgia, Corpus Christi, Galveston, mm-hmm. et cetera, and closer to the customers, closer to the, to the the port. That's changed the business dramatically. It, it, I mean, just the port, you think about the port of Houston. You know, I've talked to companies who have drivers that have never left the port of Houston and are putting on, you know, they're having seven-figure years and stuff, you know, of, of – it, it's, That's because it, of the Panama Canal expansion. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I, I think it'd be cool to trace that dollar amount in or economic future podcast. We'll, we'll future podcast. You know, we'll bring on a, a, a finance geek and maybe they'll help us out or economics guy. But um, I know just the guy. <laughs> there you go. So anyway, yeah, and then from there into freight forwarding. So mm-hmm. we use these uh, insurance loans acronyms. Acronym, pardon me, acronyms. We use the, the the phrase 3PL, third-party logistics provider. Mm-hmm. So that's basically a major shipper needs to move goods. I'm going to contract with a 3PL because they've got discounted access to freight volume. They can pay less, and they're going to they're going to broker it back to me. Mm-hmm. Concept we're both very familiar with. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> then there's there's emerging this concept of 4PL, 5PL. So basically, you're saying. We want to bring logistics providers in 
into our manufacturing operations to look at our supply chains and to contract with us to make sure that that the goods are where they need to be when they're needed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, without mentioning, you know, I don't mean to mention specific names, but I had a great tour of the Harley Davidson plant up in um, mm. Menominee. They called it Me No Money <laughs> in Wisconsin. Yeah, and I watched as the as the assembly lines were working. You take up take a part out of a bin. The computer knew that the, that bin was taken out, and so the suppliers knew that after X number of parts were used, they had to get more into that bin. Mm-hmm. So that had been outsourced, and that's basically where that's what big data and and technology enables manufacturers to do that weren't able to do before. Mm. It's really cool to be in this industry that we're in, focused on the, the type of clients we want to work with, mm-hmm. right? You're you're. It's almost in the middle of a revolution. You have so much going on right now, right? You have EVs. You have a, a company called Nikola. They're building hydrogen. Right. You have uh, Elon Musk is getting into the game, and then you have. I think we're really starting to see the public opinion, so to speak, the client's opinion of insurance, maybe move into what you were talking about is the actual business development tool. People are realizing that they have a lot of power, so to speak. You see autonomous vehicles as a as a big deal in the near future. I'm watching it closely. I'm I'm, I'm not uh, convinced yet. That I've a couple been... decades, I think. I, I I just don't think that they've been able to account for the human error factor. There's so much infrastructure that I, I I see having to go into that. You know, you need private autonomous vehicle lanes that are you know, and you you can't just say hey autonomous vehicles only right because some guy who's in a hurry or he's late for work or hates traffic is going to get into that lane if he can exactly. right because it's safer right. Exactly. I'm very interested to see where it goes because if we can work it out, it's, it's beautiful. Right. And you know, it will allow trucking companies to continue to grow despite the driver shortage. Right. Cause you know, how many people say, I, I can't take this new deal, this new MSA because I just can't hire the damn drivers. Right. And, and it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think we're, we're a couple of decades away from it. I know the insurance industry is watching it with a mixture of dread and fear and, and mm. the, the life. And it's, yeah. who knows what's going to happen. But how do you feel about the driver shortage? So I've, I've watched a lot of companies talk to their insurance underwriters about how we as an employer are better than our competition in terms of finding, training, maintaining drivers. Mm-hmm. Is, is that true? Our company's better at it than some, some companies are better at it than mm-hmm. and other companies, you know, especially in Texas, when you're a trucking company, you don't treat your drivers right, you get a reputation. Those drivers all talk to each other. Mm-hmm. If you do treat your drivers right, then people people will leave for a pretty small difference in pay. Um, but if you treat your drivers good, then it's really it's not easy to keep their loyalty, but it'll help that shortage. But the problem is there's a lot of stuff going on and sometimes the drivers need, if you're OO, you need health insurance, right? You, you need steady work. There's so much going on when it comes to the drivers. So those, those days of being able to put a, an entire fleet out on a frat calling site, I mean, they're, they're kind of over. I have frat calling clients again that are hitting a, a, a funnel, a growth funnel because of the driver hiring practices. I was gonna start a transportation adjacent company I would be a, a driver hiring retaining consultant. Exactly. I think that's that, spot on. It's somebody's gonna disrupt that. Somebody's gonna find a way. 
to, to be the preferred employer mm -hmm. for qualified drivers. And, and you know, we in the insurance industry, we get involved in that a lot. You mentioned health insurance and, and mm -hmm. all the things that we can do in terms of ergonomics and loss prevention, you know, the, the resources available to help workers figure out how to do their job safely and, and over mm -hmm. you know, decades how to do it without destroying their bodies. Mm -hmm. That stuff, a far-sighted employer is taking advantage of all that stuff. Somebody's going to figure this out, and I think that that might have more significance than autonomous vehicles in, at some point in the near future. Yeah, I, I agree. There's going to be a change in the pay, right, to, to hire, hire and retain better drivers. So when I start working with a new client, one of the very first things I do is we talk driver hiring and training practices. And, you know, if you're if you own 300 trucks and in your version of driver training is hey sit in this room for two eight hour days and watch these videos and do a road test mm -hmm. a you're opening yourself up to a, a lot of unnecessary liability and you're not getting buy-in from the driver that's going to want to make him be more safe and want to make him stay there right so i'll work with them to create a, a better training process and a better retention process and you know Part of that is finding out what their drivers value. Do their drivers value a bonus or do they value a custom Yeti or a, a polo with a logo that no one else has except for the drivers who got recognized? Those things are more important than people realize. Way more important. Way more important. You can give someone, a, you know, you can give someone a little gift card or a $50 bonus or you can give them a $15 Yeti or that's specific to them and they're going to value that Yeti exactly. much more. Exactly. You mentioned telematics earlier, and, and mm -hmm. if telematics for road, for, for trucking, over-the-road trucking, boils down to cameras, I've read some stuff and I've heard from some clients that drivers get innately suspicious and very concerned about cameras monitoring inside the cab, et cetera. So telematics have become more more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. So rather than you know creating a, a visual record of what's going on, the telematics that actually send meaningful data mm -hmm. um, to the company are, are are more important and probably in the long run more effective than slapping cameras up all everywhere on the cab and on the on the truck. Yes, that, telematics just for the sake of telematics, just to say you have them is stupid. It's a waste of money. You need to have the right telematics and you need to be using them the right way. Yeah. So I'll tell, so I'll tell a driver this. I, I have some several truck driving company friends that don't actually aren't clients, but I tell them to frame it this way. Whenever you're staring down the barrel of a $200 million lawsuit because your driver hit someone, you're going to want to know everything about that accident. Right. And so you tell that driver, Hey, this is your livelihood on the line. I mean, yeah, it might be uncomfortable to have a camera looking at you, but if some, you know, 16 year old kid is texting on the interstate and swerves into your lane, are you going to want it to be questioned or are you going to want, the insurance company and the legal beagles involved in this to know every single thing about that accident. You want to know that you, you behave properly. Right. But So that's an interesting thing too. I, I look a lot at, at major cases, crazy verdicts. There have been some incredible verdicts. Yeah. But now if you operate trucks on the U.S. roads, you basically have, in most cases, a requirement for a million dollars of liability insurance. Mm -hmm. And that caps your responsibility for loss or damage arising out of the operation of the vehicle on the road. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about a multi, multi-million dollar verdict, who pays the rest of it? 
Well, the answer is the freight broker. The, 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 there are all sorts of theories associated with suing the, the person who hired you to go out on the road, mm -hmm. suing the owner of the chassis. Plaintiff's attorneys are getting very creative in terms of fighting for different pots of money mm -hmm. to respond to those kinds of liabilities. And there was a, a proposal, I think it was two years ago, that the federal motor carrier, FMCSA, permit or require that, that operators increase from a million to say two or five million, something, mm -hmm. something more significant, which is basically going to fund the plaintiff's mm -hmm. attorney's cases. Yeah. And that got killed almost immediately. So I, why would you try to do that instead of why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you fix the tort system in general? I mean, why is there, why do you want to put more onerous restrictions on business when it comes to insurance? Of course, I'm an insurance guy. So yes, please insure yourself for more. CYA, because it's your business you built from scratch. You don't want to give it away in a lawsuit. But tort reform is very necessary when it comes. God, what it, I forget the name of the company, but there was like a $460 million, $420 million verdict in Florida. And, you know, just started reading the article and I'm like sipping my coffee. I'm like, man, this guy is screwed. You know, I wonder what company this is. It was a one truck LLC. Mm-hmm. For 400 and something million dollar verdict, that's not reasonable. That's not just. It's uncollectible too. It's uncollectible. And it, I think that it was only just so that attorney will get more business because he got a massive award. Yeah. That's right? on, it's a, it's on his billboard, yeah. It's on his billboard. I love to troll through or to, to run through plaintiff's attorney's um, websites okay. to look at some of the cases and some <laughs> of their advice to prospective um, clients. It's fascinating to the theories that they've been used to enhance the liabilities or the the, mm. the amount of money that they've basically been able to recover. Yeah. But I mean, tort reform boils down to one thing. It boils down to pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you take, how can you compensate justly um, an, an injured party for the non-economic consequences of what you as the trucker did? That's mm -hmm. the issue. And I've seen some states try to limit pain and suffering, limit punitive damages. I've seen other states not even try. I think we're kind of operating in a hodgepodge right now. I would not like to see federal control over that mm. liability across all 50 states, but that's really where the game is. And I think yeah. under the circumstances, my bets are on the plaintiff's attorneys to continue to get large, large recoveries. Yeah. For the foreseeable future. I mean, there's a, I have this checklist of things you have to do as my client that I strongly try to persuade you to do. Mm -hmm. And it's all around not getting hit with a giant lawsuit, right? <laughs> Cause accidents happen in this industry. It's inevitable. And sometimes those accidents are terrible. And sometimes the truck driver is at fault and you don't want some, we've all seen that I'm a junkyard dog. Well, you may, you're not a Texan. So there's a guy, he, I want to say it's a Texas hammer and he's just kind of this. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've seen those billboards. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he's this guy in a suit and he's kind of smaller guy and he's at, walking through a wrecked salvage yard place. And he's talking about how he's a junkyard dog and he'll fight for you. And that guy, you don't want that guy going through every e-log. You don't want him looking at your driver training records. You don't want him scrutinizing you and finding all these mistakes that, a little bit of due diligence on the front end would keep that guy away, They're right? Be, they'll, be, they'll be presented to the jury as if this company was exercising direct control over this driver in terms of dispatch. Mm -hmm. She called and said, should I take this route or that route? 
And those mm -hmm. decisions enabled him to say to the jury, it's not just the million dollar liability arising out of the truck. It's a much bigger liability arising out of the lousy way these guys manage their fleet. Mm -hmm. And that's that's been their basic attack. Yeah. The worst one I saw, I, I, without naming any names, so there's a very <laughs> large trucking company in, in the U.S., hired some independent drivers and gave one of their drivers a fuel card. Okay. And the I guess the night before this driver was going to head out, he used the fuel card at a bar. Oh, God. <laughs> and the next day was involved in a very serious multi-million dollar accident. And the, the the provider of the card that could never have anticipated the driver would have done that, but giving him access to that credit was deemed uh -huh. to be to make them culpable. So we're talking fifteen twenty million dollar verdict against the, the they didn't operate the vehicle. There was an independent driver it had nothing to do with it, but the mm -hmm. fact that they provided them the the fuel card. If there's a way to get drug into a lawsuit when it comes to trucking space, you're going to get drug into that lawsuit. Right. I mean, I almost feel like I should apologize for becoming a lawyer. <laughs> well, anyway. what the the cool thing uh, is, whenever you know you're working on a client space, you have the mind of a lawyer, so you can think like that and help them with their active risk management. You know, I do. I mean, there there are levels to this active risk management. Not everyone's going to have these amazing amazing telematics, and not everyone's going to understand what sort of actions they need to take based on, you know, 55,000 uh, data points, right? But there there are really cool companies out there. I mentioned I'm going to have one on, coming on, but I'm actually my MBA program now. I'm wrapping up. And one of the guys in the company, I don't know if I, I should say his name or not, but it's a large telematics company. Mm -hmm. And they're, they are doing amazing aggregation of data they're also heavy in MA activity buying they're buying entire companies just for their data set yeah that's where it's at right now no question where's that so if if anyone's looking at uh, starting a company or starting a business look at consulting for driver hiring training and retention and uh, maybe look at getting into the data game when it comes to telling yeah embrace you the know. data science and embrace yeah. the contract just understand yeah. the oper the situation in which you operate and try to learn from and use these obstacles or disadvantages, whatever you want to call them, to use them to your advantage. Yeah. That's, I think that the, that's the future for trucking right now. Let's talk about your process okay. and your role. Cause I, you know, you've obviously been doing this for uh, what, almost 50 years now. Yeah. That's scary. Uh, 45 years. It is scary. Thought. I started at the probably... age of five. <laughs> well, let's not get crazy. <laughs> I wanted to get into a pizza argument, but maybe we'll save that for next time. I'm assuming you're a deep dish guy. So totally. Yeah, totally. we'll, we'll we'll circle back to the Chicago style versus you know <laughs> Texas, and, and I don't want to even want to hear your opinion on Tex Mex because it seems like everyone who's not in Texas does not like Tex Mex. I have but. my bona fides as far as pizza is concerned. Probably thirty percent of my bodily protein is from pizza. <laughs> <laughs> no. What makes you, whenever boom, it's dropped on your desk? What differentiates your approach based on your information and experience? versus what else is out there in the industry we don't start i don't start with the purchase of insurance okay as far as i'm concerned that's the mean? last thing you do okay so there's an essential philosophy of risk management that says first you understand the risk then you try to fix it or ameliorate it whatever the right big word is and then ameliorate ameliorate i didn't know chicagoans could i got 25 cents every time i use that <laughs> word or or you, you fix the risk or you, you transfer the risk contractually. And then when you've gone through all that process, when you've understood your risks, 
having gone through that process, then you buy insurance. So insurance is sort of the last step after things are understood. And I, I think that's, well, I know that's a, that's a better way to, to do risk management and to buy insurance than just saying, I know I'm going to have to buy truck, I'm going to have to buy liability insurance for my trucks. Let's get right to it. I think that there's a process you need to go through first. And especially I'm reporting to you and your listeners that the insurance industry wants to hear more about those first steps. They want to see how do you understand your business? How do you use data science? How do you use contractual risk management to, to fix these things? You're going to get a lot further down the road with your insurers if, if you do that. That's, I think, the essence of what mm. what I, I try to bring to the table. Okay. And it requires a risk manager who talks to his general counsel, who talks to transportation procurement or, I mean, within the company, it requires kind of an integrated understanding of, of the approach to risks associated with transportation and logistics. Mm-hmm. And many companies, those things are siloed. Yeah. And so to the extent I can preach that gospel to the risk manager and he can reach out to GC or to procurement, they're, better, they're a better company for it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's it in a nutshell, really. Yeah. We have some similarities when it comes to that. So when I'm talking to someone and I'm trying to see if they're, they would be a good client or a good fit, and they say, yeah, I'll let you give me a quote. That's, that is the number one warning sign that that person doesn't understand the value of insurance. If, if it's a company that has 50 trucks, that's understandable because they're growing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They might not un- understand a lot of the telematics and risk management. And they don't have a general counsel and they don't have a risk manager. If the company has 2,500 trucks and they say that, I'm like, okay, well, this is a waste of my time. Yeah, but I mean, we're happy to get into the to yeah. the to the swamp and slug it out in terms yeah. of the cost of insurance, and that's that's important. Yeah, but it works better for our clients if they go through this process, if they understand it in a more holistic way. Yeah, and insurance is sort of only one part of what you're doing. Yeah, and it leads them, to, for example, to be able to make better decisions about how much risk they retain. Mm-hmm. So, what should a deductible be? on an insurance program or what should the retention be? That's a pretty complicated subject. Oh, you mean you don't just pick uh, one of the three options that's presented? <laughs> you mean you actually do some math and do some risk assessment and decide what you're, yeah. what, a, what a novel concept. Yeah, I mean, Look, man, I really appreciate that you flew in from Chicago. I want you back on. I think this is just uh, scratching the surface, man. Yeah. I want to, I want to learn more about what you have to say and what you have to offer. We still have to have a pizza argument. Next time you're in town, we'll we'll take you for some really good Texas pizza. There's a place here, it's thin crust, that they, they serve it with a sauce. And it's- Do uh, they cut it in triangles or squares? It's Chicago, thin crust Chicago pizza is cut in squares. No, 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 this is- This triangle. idea that you this take a triangle. thin crust pizza triangle and you roll, kind of roll it up and eat it that way, that's <laughs> it's inhuman. It's not right. <laughs> Texans, I'm sorry for. I'll bring my Brian Urlacher jersey back next time. (laughs) Okay, okay. Next time you come down, bring some Chicago swag, and we'll put it on the table. Cool. Something, make keychain. I don't know. Cool. Yeah, appreciate it. But you know, if someone wants to learn more about you, more about your approach, what do they do? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. And some of the stuff I do in the transportation and logistics spaces there. For example, an article I wrote about that concept of insurance as a business development tool. That's on LinkedIn. Okay, and I try to make the case that it's you know it's better not to fight the contract, but to 
let, let the contract flow and let the insurance company insure against it. And that way you can develop your business. Obviously you can reach me through my current employer. Okay. And I uh, try to give my email address. <laughs> no, we'll put it, we'll put all your uh, contact uh, information okay. in the show notes. I just like the idea that I'm part of a community. As you know, I send out probably four or five times a week an article from, from some transportation or, or logistics publication. And I don't rewrite them because I don't want to get into intellectual property issues. But I just feel like, you know, the fact that I'm reading all this stuff and I see something that interests me, mm-hmm. I really relate to a community of people who kind of, whose interests mirror mine. Mm-hmm. And so anybody who wants to be a part of that distribution list, I'm happy to, to add them. It's very informal, but I think yeah. it's helpful. Well, you, you do, you do an aggregation email very frequently where there's a lot of information and I, I read them. I love them. Um, yeah. If, if you guys want to learn more about Tom, what he has to say, what he has to offer, uh, reach out to him via the show notes, contact him. You're not going to get a pitch. So contacting him doesn't mean that I'm going to contact you or he's going to, you know, send you a brochure or anything. But if you want to learn more, maybe improve your business, reach out to him. I really appreciate it, man. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And I hope you found the conversation informative. Please feel free to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast channel. And as always, any ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated. For more information on today's guest, visit blindspotpodcast.com. Thank you.